Welcome to Clets Heads, the podcast about bilingual children. My name is Sharon Onsworth, linguist at Radboud University in Nijmegen, the Netherlands, a mother of two bilingual children. In this episode of the Clets Heads podcast, we're talking about what it means for a bilingual child to have a language delay, the extent to which this is the same as having a language disorder, and how to go about diagnosing developmental language disorder in bilingual children. We also speak to a teacher and educational consultant who gives us five simple steps to make space for bilingualism in the classroom. And the 10-year-old Naya tells me about learning to read in Japanese at Saturday school and how she lived in Denmark for five years but can now barely remember any Danish. On with the podcast. Children say their first word when they're about one year old. And before they reach 18 months... They've usually already glued two words together to make the first mini sentence. At least that's what the average child does. Because just like many of those other milestone moments, such as the first step or the first tooth, there can also be big differences between children when it comes to their language development. Some children produce the first word at nine months, which is very early, whereas others might only start talking half a year later. Differences between children are normal then. But when should you be concerned that your child's language development is taking too long and that he or she might in fact have a language delay? Are bilingual children more likely to have a language delay than monolingual children? What is a language delay anyway and is it the same as having a developmental language disorder, a condition known to affect around 1 in 15 children? If you think a bilingual child might have this condition, how do you find out? In this episode of Kletzheads, we talk to Dr Sean Pert speech and language therapist and researcher at the University of Manchester in the UK. Sean has years of clinical experience working with bilingual children and their families and he was also responsible for the Royal College of Speech and Language Therapists clinical guidelines on bilingualism. Now because he's based in the UK we talk about English as the school language but you should of course replace this with whatever the school language is wherever you are. So Dutch, if you're here in the Netherlands like me, Spanish in Spain, Norwegian in Norway, Japanese in Japan and so on. Parents of bilingual children are often told that their child has a language delay. And I started by asking Sean what a language delay actually is and whether this is something other than not being able to speak English very well. It's a really good question because... Um, having a problem with some aspect of speech or language is, is we think, the most common uh, condition that children have. So if they're going to have a difficulty in their childhood, it's probably with some aspect of speech, language and communication. And anything that seems to kind of deviate from the general norm people worry about. This is not just parents, but often professionals like health visitors and teachers get very worried when children don't meet milestones. So I was really pleased to hear you say that children really vary. Having said that, language delay um, is is fairly common. And um, this is when uh, young children, quite young children, are slow at combining words into sentences. And they may have difficulty with um, things like concepts like the places of things like prepositions in, on and under. They may have difficulty with um, action words, um, thinking about um, children that maybe name lots of things but don't say what's happening to them. So right. they, they might name things but not be able to put a sentence together that actually talks about something that's happening. Particularly in the UK, language delay, because it sounds a kind of reassuring that you think, well, they're just a bit behind, they're going to catch up. Um, and actually, as, as, a, as a clinician, as a speech and language therapist, I used to use this label a lot. But then, mm. like a lot of us, we started to think, well, when do we start saying your child really needs specialist help? Because are they behind? Is it OK to be behind when you're three? Is it OK to be behind when you're seven? So it starts to become more concerning as a child gets older and there's a bigger right. gap between them and their peers. Right. If we think about bilingual children, then could we say that it's the same as you can't speak English very well or that you're not up to speed yet? Yeah, I think it's a really good question because bilingualism brings in that extra dimension. And this is historically where people 
have really fallen into the um, kind of really obvious bear traps, which is, is looking at a child's language purely from one language perspective. I always say to my students, if you parachute me into the middle of Brazil and I, I don't speak Portuguese, have I suddenly got a language disorder because I don't speak Portuguese and everyone else does? Well, no, I just haven't developed yeah, that additional yeah, language. Yeah. But I think, I think we do that with children all the time, don't we? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think parachute might be the only way you can get to Brazil at the minute. Yeah, well, probably, but... yeah. Um, but I think, I mean, just, just to keep that um, image in mind, you know, in the UK we have a fair number of children who join us and they've already learned how to speak their home language. That might be because they've moved to the UK or it might be because they've got a family that use a home language other than English. And it's interesting that we call those children bilingual because I say, well, no, they're monolingual in a language other than English and they are potentially bilingual, but they really haven't had an opportunity to learn English yet. So why are we calling them bilingual? And it's this attitude that English is the only language that is important in the UK. Um, and that's galling not only to the Welsh and the Scottish Gaelic speakers, but also the, the large numbers, the millions of people who do speak a home language. Yeah, yeah. Language delay, uh, that is one term that's often used. It's maybe the more general term. Hmm. And then we also have developmental language disorder. Yes. So what what is that and what is the difference between the two? We tend to say that children are delayed because they might be a late bloomer up to about two years of age. So suddenly children can go from virtually nothing to, to catching up to their peers. Once they start to get to between, you know, five and seven years old, it's it's becomes increasingly less likely that they're going to spontaneously recover. So right. rather than a delay, we would start to say that we think they've probably got a developmental language disorder. But that's a gross simplification because we'd obviously need to do a range of assessments and observations and also rule out other things that might be causing problems with the acquisition of, of language skills just to make sure that we have got the right diagnosis. And yeah. it's a bit it's a bit hard. It's not like... Um, a medical condition where you can do a scan or a blood test it's a profile really it's a profile of the of the child or young person's abilities and this is why it's so time consuming and kind of causes people difficulties because i can't just see somebody for say an hour in clinic and say you've got tld i need to see them with their peers maybe observe them in school talk about their the pathway so far and how they, they communicate with people who know them really well. Um, and things like, you know, we've got other things like selective mutism where children might choose not to speak in certain settings. So we've got um, lots of things to rule out first before we can get to that DLD. People hang on to the idea that maybe bilingualism causes a difficulty. It really never does, never, ever, ever. And one of the guidelines for the Royal College of Speech and Language Therapists here in the UK is that bilingualism never contributes or causes a speech and language disorder. And the thing is, uh, for me, um, the elephant in the room here is, is poverty. A lot yeah. of children live in poverty and whether mm -hmm. they're white monolingual English speakers or French speakers or... Italian speakers or Urdu speakers, they're going to be negatively affected by those um, socioeconomic conditions. People think, ah, if my child's born with a hearing impairment, that's going to have a big impact on their future if I don't sort it out. It is as toxic to your development if you're living in poverty. We can measure children's vocabulary at school age entry and predict if they'll go to university because it has this concertina effect through their careers. I think you've mentioned a, a few things already but maybe you can just uh, give us a quick roundup of the kind of telltale signs that you should look for as a parent that your child might have DLD. At any age if you are concerned then you should um, at least talk to a professional or go on a website and find out um, kind of information about what you think children should typically do. A lot of people compare children with other children, especially their own children, which is kind of okay, but you might have had your first child might be a really great language acquirer 
Um, and we know that girls tend to be slightly quicker than boys at certain stages and then they catch up. So yeah. it, it's kind of hard to compare children like for like. Um, and we talked about individual differences earlier. But roughly speaking, um, between 12 and 18 months, children should be using their first words. And from their first words, they should be very quickly acquiring tens and then hundreds of first words. By about two years, as you kind of said in your introduction, children start to combine words and they do this not accidentally, actually. They they start to see that they can get more mileage, more meanings if they use two words together rather than just one. And they tend to do this with words they hear a lot in their environment and things that they interact with. So basically, if uh, if you're listening to this and you think... Mm, I'm not sure that my child is doing that around the age that was just mentioned, mm. then that's maybe a, a signal to think, okay, maybe I should investigate this a bit more. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think any professional would be um, annoyed at being asked about, should I be worried about this? As children get older, it should be more obvious that there's a, there's a, from a small gap, there might be a big gulf then between their um, their kind of life experience and their peers and what they can say. So by three, children yeah. should be really talking about lots of things in their life. You know, uh, dog is eating his dinner, mum is washing the car, dad's cooking the dinner, you know, those kind of things that they see every day. There's this big myth that we talk to give a message or to ask for things. And people say, oh, babies talk and young children talk because they want things or because they they want to ask things. And I go, no, nonsense. Children talk because they're sociable and they want to take turns in this wonderful game of communication. So the first things that most children say is, hiya, hiya, Gran, hiya, Mum. That was my daughter's first word. Was it really? For those of you who are not from the north of England, like Sean and me, Aye, as you probably guessed, means hello. Sean explained that using language socially like this, so to make contact with other people, is something else you can look for as a parent if you're worried about your child's language development. So if your child is kind of doing these social things and joining in and has lots of beautiful pretend play, but maybe isn't using the language that matches it, then I would be concerned. Right, so, right. I mean, a good example was, you know, I, I saw a little girl. She was she was wonderfully social. She brought me toys to show me. She showed me what she did with the, a, a dollhouse and she showed me what her family did in the evening all through play. She had no language to describe that. And because she was over three and a half, I was really concerned about her because she wasn't right. able to describe those simple things that she was genuinely interested in. Right. Okay. In a minute, we'll talk about diagnosing these kinds of problems with bilingual children, which I think present a, a host of other challenges as well. Yes. First, we're going to hear from our Clet's Head of the Week. Clet's Head of the Week. My name is Naya Hazel, Naya Cotto Hazel, and I am 10 years old. I live in the North East and I speak English and Japanese. English and Japanese. Who do you speak English with and who do you speak Japanese with? I speak English with normally my dad and my brother and then Japanese, my mum really. Have you got any um, family in Japan? Yeah, I've got my granddad and then I've got my auntie and uncle, which I always speak Japanese with. I'm guessing your, your grandpa, he can't speak uh, English, can he or can he? No, he only says hello. You are very cute. <laughs> <laughs> so then you have to speak Japanese to him. Yeah. Yeah. There's no yeah. other way. No. And do you speak to them very often? No, not really, because I don't see them or we don't really Zoom together because it's a different time. So a different time here when it's different time there. And it's just we never really see them much. Have you been to Japan? Yes, I went to Japan last year with my mum in February. And I saw them then. And what's it like in Japan with everything written in Japanese around you? Yeah, I sometimes can't read some stuff because I'm still learning. But some things I can start reading now because I'm learning it. It's just a whole new world. A whole new world. And tell me, what's it like to learn to read in Japanese? Because it's quite different from English, isn't it? 
Yeah, it's difficult because there's um, three ways of writing. So there's hiragana, hiragana, and then there's katagana, and then there's kanji. Sometimes it could be hard, but when you get the hang of it, you just start to flow in the rhythm. Where are you learning to read Japanese? I go to Japanese school on Saturdays and my mum teaches me at home. And what's it like going to Japanese school? It's nice because you get to make new friends, you get to learn new stuff. You may think, oh, it's school on a Saturday. It's actually very fun and entertaining. Oh, that's good. Because I could imagine a lot of people would think, oh, school on a Saturday as well. Which language do you prefer to speak? That's a hard question. I, um, I like speaking both. Yeah, I don't think I can say which I like speaking more. Like, it's just different. So sometimes Japanese comes in my head before English, and sometimes English comes in my head before Japanese. So it just keeps crossing over. Aha. Uh-huh. That's interesting, isn't it? How that happens. Yeah. Does that sometimes make you say things differently or say things you don't mean to? Or Yeah, sometimes, because sometimes I copy what my mum says and sometimes those things that I say aren't very appropriate. Tell me more. That sounds interesting. <laughs> yeah. it's um. So I've heard this new word. I just say, oh, this sounds nice. So I just start saying, yeah, that's actually a bad word. So... I don't use it again. <laughs> I'm sure your mum doesn't say lots of bad words. No, only when she's, she said, oh, I dropped this. So, oh no. Mm-hmm. And then she says, yeah. Some words that you're not going to repeat. So is it important for you to be able to speak both English and Japanese? Yeah, it probably is because I'm when I'm older, I want to live in both countries. So maybe some years in Japan, some years in England, then keep swapping over. So you're planning an international life. Yeah. So when you're older, you think you'll speak both languages? Yeah, I want to speak both languages. Yeah. And imagine if you become a mum, right? If you have yeah. children, which language would you speak to your children? Well, I would probably normally speak English, but I would like to teach them some Japanese because then they could communicate with my mum. And what's your favourite word in Japanese? My favourite word, eh? Um, Well, some words I still don't know, but... Of all the words you know? Of all the words I know. Koto. 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 So it's a instrument, and my middle name is Nyokoto Hazel. It's a string instrument that you play, and it's kind of like a harp, harp, but it's kind of on the floor. Oh, that sounds interesting. And can you yeah. play that instrument? No, I haven't actually seen it in real life. I've only seen it on the internet and heard it. What language do you dream in? I dream in both, really. Um, when I'm sleeping, I sometimes talk, and my mum and dad always tell me what language I'm saying it in. I guess I, I speak both in languages in um, my dreams. Uh-huh. I was going to say, how do you know? But now you've got a good way of knowing, right, yeah. if you're talking your sleep. You know, in different languages, animals make different sounds, right? So, so no, in English, a cow says moo, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and in Dutch it says boo. What's a frog in English? Gribbit. Gribbit, yeah, gribbit. And in Japanese it's gelo gelo. Gelo gelo? Yeah, gelo gelo. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny, isn't it? How some languages hear it differently. So can you teach me anything else in Japanese? What would you like to know? I may not know everything, but... Oh, I don't know. How can I say I live in Holland and I am 46 years old? All right, let's start with the first bit. Okay, so Watashi wa? Watashi wa? Watashi wa Holland ni. Watashi wa Holland ni. Yeah, means I live in Holland ni sundeite. Holland ni sunete. Sundeite. Sundeite. I think we should leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, quite hard. 
it is quite hard if you've never done it before, isn't it? So I know that you uh, you lived in Denmark, didn't you, when you were younger? Yeah, I lived there for five years. I was born there. And could you speak Danish then? Yes, I actually, all I did was speak Danish, but now it's drifted away. So can you remember anything in Danish or not? I can only say, hi, my name is Naya. Oh, do you want to say that for me? Hi, me noun and Naya. That's all. Really? Isn't that funny yeah. how that happened? Yeah, but I like, I can say my favourite bread. Oh, what's that then? Hopwell. What kind of bread is that? It's kind of seeds inside and it's not like a normal bread that you would eat here. It's kind of lots of seed clumped together, but then that's the bread part and it's, yeah, I love it. Mmm, sounds delicious. And if you, can you tell me the name of your favourite food in Japanese or your favourite Japanese food? Udon. Ah, I know what that is. They're noodles, right? Yes. Mmm, yum. I love, I love Japanese food. So uh, one last question. What's the best thing about being bilingual? The best thing about being bilingual is you, it's kind of like showing off. You've got a skill that you, you only have that you can say, oh, did you know that I can speak Japanese? You, oh, and I can, I'm, I'm bilingual. I can speak two languages. And you, and you can communicate. So when you go to different countries, so say if I go to Japan and I know nothing, it'd be kind of useless. Oh, going, I want to go into a supermarket by going to the beauty store or something. So you need to actually read the signs and it helps really cool so you're a bit special so we always end by asking you to say thank you and goodbye arigato mata kondone arigato mata kondone arigato mata kondone naya let's head off the week Today we're talking with Sean Pert from the University of Manchester, a speech and language therapist, and we're talking about how you know whether your bilingual child has a language delay or developmental language disorder. We've we've talked now about what a developmental language disorder is, and you've given us some some clear guidelines as to the the things to look for when when to maybe genuinely be worried and to seek help they hold for monolingual and bilingual children uh, of course now is developmental language disorder more frequent in bilingual children than monolingual children is it all is it always the seven percent uh irrespective of the uh, of the number of languages you speak it's it's not more common there's no reason for um any speech and language condition to be more frequent in uh, bilingual families. But what can happen is that children have later referrals because people might not recognise that there is a difficulty. So I would tend to um, be slightly err on the side of caution and encourage people to refer children earlier because speech and language therapists and other professionals really don't mind reassuring parents. so I love it when a parent comes and says I'm a little bit worried and I go they're doing some beautiful sentences in a home language or they're code switching beautifully I'm really not worried at all that you know they're they're really communicating very nicely for this age that's a really good use of time because then you know I can say you know if in six months time or if in a year's time they're not producing short narratives or slightly longer sentences then come see me again. So I think I would rather do that than see, say, a seven-year-old right. that's just been left alone because, which is more common, people have said, oh, it's because he's bilingual. Then he's got to seven, eight years old, and this child can't put a simple sentence together. And people have blamed that on bilingualism. And I'm saying, well, really, any child who can't put a sentence together over the age of um, three and a half, four, I'm really going to start to be concerned about right, that. Right. Now, the, the the key thing here is is a sentence can be a spoken sentence can be in any language. Right. So sometimes people will refer children to me simply because they don't speak English, and my first question to parents is, "What's he like at home?" And if they say, "Oh yeah, he's fine. He never shuts up. You know, he's he's talking really lovely sentences. He talks about what he's doing and playing." I'm like. 
oh, I'm not concerned about that anymore because the ability to speak English is not an impairment. It's just they haven't spent enough time as an additional language learner. So, you, you know, it takes a long time to learn an additional language because it takes a long time to learn your first language. You know, you, you take you spend the first three and a half, four years of your life learning the basics of a language. And then people expect Bangal children to go into a nursery or a school and learn English in, what, six months, really? And I think the thing that is really interesting is that children are incredibly good at learning language. Oh, yeah. And British politicians have got a lot to answer for because they say children should speak English, and I don't disagree with them. But where I do disagree with them is learning to English should not involve losing your home language. Absolutely. If you speak another language, you can see that the word for chair has nothing to do with the sounds chair. It can be a completely different set of sounds. And then you get the idea. It's really easy to then learn a, a second, third or even fourth language. Yeah, yeah. Sounds like a good, uh, another good topic for a podcast. It does. Uh, yeah. for, for an episode. <laughs> Going back to DLD though. So if you've been diagnosed with DLD in one language, does that yeah. mean you have it in the other one too? What you really need to think about is that what does developmental language disorder mean? What it yeah. means is you have a problem analysing language full stop, regardless of what shape or form that language is in. It's a bit like saying, are you deaf in both languages? Well, of course, because it's affecting your hearing system. Well, your language acquisition system is impaired. So no matter which language you are exposed to, whether you're exposed to one language or three, that impaired language acquisition process means that you will have greater difficulty than children without that impairment. Right. So that that segues quite nicely to my next question, which is, if, if you think your child, your bilingual child might have DLD, do you need to have them assessed in both languages? Or if it's established for English, is that enough? If you are mainly speaking a home language, you should be assessing that language first. If you are speaking two languages at home and one of them's English, then you need them both assessed because you need a full picture. You don't want just an English picture. And um, even if a child only started to learn English, you would expect then, my prediction as a therapist would be, well, I'm going to see lots of language in home language and maybe a little bit of English. But if I'm seeing no English, I'm going, well, you know, they're really they're really having problems in decoding English. Um, the other thing about that is that speech and language therapists use standardised tests. And standardised tests are basically saying, I'm going to compare your child with hundreds or perhaps thousands of children who have only ever spoken English. And you've right. got to ask, is that fair? And, of course, the answer is no. Your your child is a bilingual child. They are neither monolingual Dutch nor monolingual English. They are neither monolingual Polish nor monolingual Russian. So you can't compare them to either of those. So that's why um, we tend to use much more descriptive um, assessments. So the assessments I devised for working with Pakistani heritage children were in home language. We would accept code switching. Um, and in fact, the children who um, don't code switch, we were more concerned about because actually typically developing Bengal children code switch very freely and they increase the amount of code switching, which is a sign that they know how to manipulate language. I think that depends on the community as well, right? It certainly does. And that's where you've got to look at what's normal and expected. So that's one of the questions I'd be asking, really. It's what's normal, what's expected, what input is the child hearing? And I think you've these multiple factors mean that this adds to the complexity of assessment. Now, I think that's fascinating, and that's why I love working with bilingual families. But a lot of speech language therapists receive very little training about bilingualism. And um, if they have knowledge, they'll have learnt that postgraduate or from their own right. clinical practice. Things like the Royal College and ASHA in America and so forth are trying to promote a much more equitable um, training and postgraduate training for therapists. But most therapists feel at sea working uh, maybe alongside an interpreter and in languages that they don't speak. So if you have a bilingual child and you're worried about their language development, then there's no harm in talking to a speech-language therapist and asking them to have a chat with your child to try and figure out if he or she has a developmental language disorder or is still in the process of learning English 
or whatever the main language is wherever you are. If your child has a developmental language disorder, she'll have it in both languages. And so it's important that when she's assessed, both of these languages are taken into account. This is the only way speech-language therapist can establish the full picture when it comes to your child's language skills. Now that's all well and good, but many, if not most, speech-language therapists won't be able to speak your child's other language, what we've been referring to as their home language. I asked Sean, given that this is the case, how we can reasonably expect speech-language therapists to be able to do this. People say to me, oh, won't it be great when we have bilingual speech and language therapists? But Manchester, as a, as a vibrant city, has, you know, in excess of 200 and odd languages, maybe 300 wow. languages. So there's never going to be a speech therapist that speaks 300 languages. So we can put that to one side. So all speech and language therapists need the skill of working alongside an interpreter. And you'll note I say working alongside an interpreter because these are valuable team members. I really flinch when people say, use an interpreter. I mean, no, I use a spoon. I don't use an interpreter. It's really, you know, interpreting is really very complex and sophisticated. So do people have always have access to interpreters or is, are there cases where that's just not, not going to happen? Because I could imagine if, if you don't live in somewhere like Manchester, mm. where, you know, there, there are larger communities, speakers of different languages, yeah, how do you access uh, an interpreter? Are you entitled to be able to do that? Yes, it's it's incredibly important that people understand that working with interpreters is not optional. Now, in the UK, uh, as an advisor for the Royal College, I've had therapists say to me, my manager says that it costs too much money. And I've phoned that manager and gone, you are breaking clinical practice. This is essential and potentially illegal because the... Um, the law in the UK says that we shouldn't act to discriminate against people. And actually, you, you really can't deliver an accurate diagnosis just assessing in English. So it's absolutely essential. Ultimately, if I'm interviewing a parent, are they likely to be more comfortable to tell me more information about their language use in that language? Absolutely, they are. And I think as well, if you do work in just English, you're giving the family the the signal that only English is important. Right. And, and and English is already incredibly high status. I mean, English is the language of the web. It's the language of pop music. Of It's the language of films. We don't need to promote English. They're going to want to speak English. What we do need to encourage is people to speak their home language. So for me, if I assess a child and meet a family without an interpreter, I'm saying to them, I don't care about your home language. All I care about is English, whether I say that specifically or they just get that impression. Right. And families already have this impression. They apologise for using other languages. I've had clients say, oh, I think it's the bilingualism that's caused this language problem. And I go, you know, your older son that's kind of slumped over his phone in the corner, being, you know, a typical teenager. Does he speak both of your languages? Oh, yes, beautifully. So if, if it worked with him... Why do you think it would have a negative impact on your child? So it's just interesting that people absorb these, frankly, racist attitudes to um, lower status languages and think that they, they're useless. So then as a parent, if you go to a speech language therapist because you're concerned about your child and your speech language therapist is only interested in or only willing to test, uh, assess your child in English, what what should you do? Well, I think the first thing is to just straight up before you even go best practice is that um, the therapist would make contact to you and really I want to check the language because a lots of languages are misreported particularly minority languages so in the UK we have lots of Pakistani heritage families and everyone will tell a white person that they speak Urdu now hardly anybody speaks Urdu some do it's quite a posh high status language Urdu and you know if I get the wrong interpreter that's a complete waste of time. So basically you should be expecting that before you even have any kind of assessment contact has been made and a conversation has been had about the other language. Right. Yeah. If you're a uh, go to a speech language therapist and you get told your child is performing below expectations and that's based on norms from a standardized test and that test was inevitably based on a monolingual population again their alarm bells should be ringing absolutely i would seriously question that and also if you think about it if i had particularly for young children say the under threes if i have a class full of 40 under three-year-olds 
that have just started being exposed to English, let's say 7% of those children have DLD, but the rest are just typical additional language learners. If I said them in English, all of them can say virtually nothing. So which, which ones have DLD and which ones are just normal language learners that haven't had enough time in English? If you have a, a developmental language disorder, you will absolutely have the same difficulties in, in all the languages that the child speaks. To get an accurate picture, we, we work holistically. We always say we work holistically. We work with families. We work with the whole person. How can you know the whole person if every child of any age from school from nursery starter through to six you know to 18 year olds every one of those children and young people spend more time at home than they do in school settings so how can you possibly know about their language function if you're only seeing the school setting language let's let's in every episode of clets heads we talk to a parent or teacher about their experiences with bilingual children my name is marie I live in Amsterdam, the Netherlands, and I work as an educational consultant and trainer. And, and what exactly is that, an educational consultant and trainer? What do you do? <laughs> Good question. My field is intercultural competence and inclusive education. What do you mean by intercultural competence? Because I'm not sure all our listeners will, will understand what exactly that involves. So basically, that's any kind of skills, knowledge, attitudes, understanding, um, that you would need whenever you are in culturally diverse settings. So one of the programs I'm involved in is is actually a specialization um, within a teacher training program. And the specialization focuses on future teachers in diverse contexts. How long have you been doing this? So, well, this is only part of what I'm doing. So I've, I've been in the field of intercultural education since... 2009-2010. Back then I was still studying in Budapest, Hungary, which is where I was born and raised. And and I know that recently you helped set up a bilingual primary school in, in Amsterdam here in the Netherlands. So that's where children learn English and Dutch as a language of instruction, right? But the, there's also room for their home languages. And I know that uh, yeah. you were instrumental in, in making room for those home languages. Can you tell us a bit more about that that school and, and what you did there? The name of the school is Denise, the Nieuwe Internationale School Esprit. Denise was born out of the idea that we wanted to give newly arrived immigrants a full program. And that is in contrast to this language program in which they would basically be put into intensive almost non-stop Dutch Dutch um, learning programs without much attention on the other subjects. I worked there as a curriculum coordinator as an English teacher as an English as an additional language tutor and also later as an intercultural competence coordinator across the entire school primary and secondary and so within all of these these functions these roles I could experiment with intercultural competence and with um, giving space to cultural diversity. Linguistic diversity, so different languages are uh, obviously a big part of cultural diversity too. So can you give us an example of what kind of backgrounds are we talking about that that the children had in in the classes that you've taught? The actual data that we had was from, from the secondary school. And I believe in 2016, we had something like 35 different languages spoken at the school, partly newly arrived immigrants and refugees, uh, but we also had the more, you know, expat population, as it would be called. Um, and we also had Dutch students that simply wanted a more international education. That's a very mixed bag. And I can imagine as a teacher that can feel and probably is rather challenging. I'm imagining that the levels of English and Dutch differ quite a lot across children within an individual classroom. So what concrete tips have you got then for, for schools and teachers to to address this? I find it interesting because you also you also use the word challenging. And I do I do realize that that is how it often feels, but I, I don't think I personally ever experienced that as as uh-huh. challenging. I always saw that more as an as an opportunity. That would be my perspective too, but I'm sure there are many people listening who think, you know, well, I, I have a class uh, with lots of uh, 
children from different backgrounds and I don't really know what to do with them. Tell us how you make an opportunity out of what for many people is a challenge. That's very recognizable, right? I, I have also seen several colleagues struggle with that. I just wanted to share how I personally never experienced it that way. My basic tip to colleagues and to any teacher in a multilingual setting would be to dare to go for multilingualism and to dare to give space to multilingualism. I would like to offer five very simple tips, which are just a way to start. And so my first tip would be to hang up welcome posters. These are typically posters saying welcome, hello, or maybe how are you in all the languages that are present in the school. My experience is that parents and students also are more than happy to contribute to making this poster. And so you as a teacher actually do not need to even bother with the creating of the poster itself. You can just ask some volunteers to make it for you. And so my second tip would be also very practical to label items and concepts in in all the languages present. You can do this in two different ways. If you are working with uh, young students, so thinking the beginning of primary school, or perhaps mm-hmm. if you have students that have just joined your school and they mm-hmm. do not yet, a sh- yet have a shared language, with you as their teacher, you can ask them to just walk around in the classroom or perhaps in the entire school and label items in any language that they do speak, that they do write. And this way you help your students show what they are able to do and not only focus on what they are not yet able to do. However, you as as their teacher can also walk around and add, for example, in in our case, the Dutch labels to these um, labels and... By, by doing this, you also create a learning opportunity for your students. Right. So this is another really simple idea. So basically, by doing these simple activities, you can, uh, you can raise your students' involvement. So what's number three then? Number three is explore your students' language repertoire. What we have been looking at so far in number one and two are more global ways to give space to multilingualism. However, what you can also do is to zoom in on your individual students and to look at their individual language repertoires. And I have two simple activities that can help you do this. One of them is this body outline activity, which some of you might be familiar with. And what students do in this activity is they choose a color for each language that they speak. They also create a legend showing which which color stands for which language. Mm -hmm. And then they go on and they color in their language outline, showing where each language belongs in their body. Right. So it could be, you know, um, I I work hard at school in Dutch, for example. So Dutch is in my head, but I give cuddles to my mom and dad in Spanish. So I cuddle in the heart with the Spanish color, something like Is that what we mean exactly and what's the what's the second one then for this activity i create a venn diagram which is basically a couple of circles that partially overlap Mm -hmm. and i ask my students to draw one circle for every language that they actively use okay and then to make sure that these languages that these circles all overlap somewhere and so they would then think of activities that they do in their languages such as think, dream, play, sing, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then they, they see in which, in which languages they would do those activities. And often, you know, they, they will find that they actually do an activity such as speaking all of their languages. And so this would actually come in the part that overlaps. However, they will also find that they might play in only one language and so they, they themselves also get a clearer idea of themselves and their languages. And then later, this is also something that they can share with each other. Number four is to send out vocabulary lists. If you are, are going to focus on a new topic in the upcoming weeks or maybe even month, at the very beginning of the topic, you can create a vocabulary list, listing the main concepts, the main words that your students are going to need in the target language. You then send this list home and you ask the parents to discuss these words with their children in their first languages or home languages. And this helps the students come prepared 
so the students feel familiarize themselves with the main concepts in a language that they feel comfortable with. They will also have already seen the list of words in the target language, and so they just have a better chance at following the curriculum once they do come to school. And I can imagine that right now when many countries around the world are in the middle of a lockdown where children are not at school and they're at home and parents are having to help uh, their children do homework in a language that they don't really know, that such a vocabulary list could also be quite useful, right, for their parents uh, too to help you know, facilitate that process, to help help their children, as it were. Absolutely. So what's your fifth and final step then? To let students prepare for an activity, for an assignment in the language of their choice. And the reason I find this important is that I know from my own experience and also my experience as a teacher that when we ask our students or multilingual students to show us what they know only in the target language, they cannot actually show us what they know. They're mm-hmm. only able to show us what they are able to show us in the target language. And that is not necessarily the same as what they know and what they're able to do in other languages. Um, so with um, students, perhaps from the age of 10 and upwards, um, you, can, you can let them do research for an activity in any language, but you can also let them write the first draft for an assignment, for an essay perhaps, or practice writing a speech in another language. Um, Eventually, they will still need to do the final assignment in the target language, but the preparation process can really help them in the final Mm -hmm. outcome. And this is something that I have experienced myself as a teacher. So I had this example when a student created, practiced, and wrote a speech in Russian, and then he delivered the speech in front of the class in English. And this was a student who was usually hard to motivate. He was struggling with English. And so he would kind of become the the clown in the group. You know, he would take mm-hmm. on the role because he, he found it difficult. And as soon as I let him prepare in Russian, he just felt comfortable. So he no longer had to play the clown and he could allow himself to work seriously. And so what I got eventually was was a great speech because he had all the opportunity to prepare his speech well in Russian. And finally, this also helped his level of English during the presentation. Great. So there are five very concrete steps with many practical examples of what you can do then as a teacher to make space for bilingualism in in the classroom or in the school more generally. So we're both based in, in, in the Netherlands. What do you think the future looks like for bilingual children here? I have to say I am both frustrated and hopeful. I am hopeful because I see much more interest in yeah. multilingualism. However, what I also see is um, is quite slow reaction when it mm-hmm. comes down to schools' reality. And this is what frustrates me. I think that, that schools will need to adapt faster. The research is there. The general understanding of multilingualism being something that, that can be appreciated, something that needs to give, be given space to. I think that this idea is more or less becoming established as a norm. And I think that now we quite quickly need to take action and look into implementation. Within this implementation, I really find these five best practices or these five first steps to be very helpful. And I would I would encourage anybody in a school, be it a teacher or a school head, to just go ahead and start with those five steps. And then later they can figure out the rest. Do not uh, withhold yourself from giving multilingualism a space because you don't know where to start. Just start and you will get there. Let's class! Some great tips there for Marie about how to make use of bilingual children's home languages in the classroom. Marie has written a great blog about the five steps that she talked about here. So if you want to find out more and see some photos of the various assignments that she spoke about, then take a look at the show notes. You'll find those either in your podcast app or at our website, kletsheadspodcast.org. If you're a teacher with bilingual children in your class and you're concerned about the development in the school language, as Sean said, it's important if you want a full picture to try and figure out what's going on in the home language too. 
You can do this by asking the parents how they think their child is getting on when it comes to their Urdu, Polish, Italian or whichever language or languages it might be. Not just sort of a general question, but saying, you know, if the child is four years old, you know, can they tell you a little story about what they've done today at school? Can they, you know, can they relate that information? Can they tell you about what they did at home? Even when I work in a home language, I really want to know the real detail of what a child is using to put sentences together. How can I possibly do that just in English alone? So it's really, really vital that we get a really close and accurate picture of the, the child's full language ability. That sounds like a perfect way to end. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been lovely. It really has. So here's a quick summary of what Sean told us in this episode. Having a developmental language disorder is something different from not being able to speak the school language very well. Bilingual children are just as likely or unlikely to have such a disorder as their monolingual classmates. Remember, DLD, or developmental language disorder, occurs in 1 in 15 children. That's 7% of the population. If you're a parent and you're worried about your child's language development, get in touch with a speech-language therapist and ask them to have a chat with your child. And if you're a speech-language therapist, make sure you assess both the child's languages. As a teacher, any concerns about a child's progress in the school language should also involve a check-in with the parents about what's going on at home. As I said in the introduction, Sean was involved in writing the clinical guidelines on bilingualism for the UK's Royal College of Speech and Language Therapists. And you'll find a link to these in the show notes. If you're in the Netherlands, you can also find a link in the show notes to the Dutch Bilingual Speech and Language Therapy Association. On their website, you can find a map showing speech and language therapists in the Netherlands who can assess children in languages other than Dutch. That's it for now. Next month, we'll be back with an episode on language mixing. If you want to know more about Kletzheads, go to kletzheadspodcast.org. That's where you'll also find more information about this episode. And if you want to make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to Kletz Heads using your favourite podcast app. Make sure you select the English edition. And if you've enjoyed the show, why not share it with a friend? Thanks for listening. And as we say in Dutch, tot het volgende keer.